Hello, friends. We are back with episode 125 of the Our Weekly Highlights podcast. My name is Eric Nance, and if it's your first time here, I'm so glad to have you join us for our latest take on what's happening on rweekly.org's latest issue with a batch of terrific highlights to share our perspectives on and to give you more resources to learn your usage of R in the R community. And as I mentioned, my name is Eric, and I'm joined by my awesome co-host, Mike Thomas. Mike, how are you doing? Doing well, Eric. Uh, a little gloomy out here on the East Coast this week, We're coming off some hot weather, uh, e- evening out. But um, you know what's always hot? The highlights. That's right. You can never cool down the highlights. You're you're um, you're spot on with that. And we're going to get things going quickly here. Our curator this week is John Calder, another longtime member of our Art Weekly team. And as always, he had tremendous help from our Art Weekly team members and contributors like all of you around the world with your various poll requests and other great resources you've shared with us online. First, we're going to, you know, dive into, speaking of hot topics, you know, the topic of large language models is always a hot topic in data science these days. And we got an amazing one to tell you about today and where you can supercharge your development of our code taking advantage of the latest and greatest here. And we are f- specifically focusing on this great blog post by Samuel Calderon, who is a political scientist at the Ministerio de Interior in Peru. But he actually had an exploration of how he could take advantage of what he saw really convenient in his recent Visual Studio Code explorations by having an extension. I believe the extension was called Genie, if I'm not mistaken, inside VS Code as his little pain inside the editor to throw a question to Chad GBT as he was trying to modify some of his internal Shiny applications that he was doing at the day job to uh, supercharge a little JavaScript. So naturally, Samuel thought, well, if I can do this in VS Code, how can I do this in Studio? We all love to use Studio for most of our art projects. And at first he was thinking, oh, do I have to make this myself? No, he does not because there is a terrific package in the community called GPT Studio, which was originally authored by Michelle Navard and is now maintained by James Wade, who you may remember has authored the previously featured GPT Tools package right here on this podcast, actually multiple times. So great, uh, great brain trust behind that package. And so Samuel, again, saw this package and said, okay, this is great. This is what I'm looking for. And then, you know, much like what I would do, I don't just look at the package like cram page or website. I like to check out the GitHub repo, kind of see what the code is behind all this and seeing what the latest issues are. So he found the issue tracker and saw that there was an issue posted by the one and only John Harmon, you know, the architect around R for data science about running the embedded Shiny app that brings up the ChatGPT, in essence, text prompt and serves up the answer right into the RStudio IDE, but being able to run it as a background process, which makes a lot of sense to me, because the last thing you want to do is having to have your foreground process of editing your R code kind of being taken up by that one little viewer window. This is a big issue for many of us in Shiny Processing, being able to run things effectively in the background. So he did a little digging, did a little code modification and a fork and made a pull request, and that was merged. Terrific improvement right off the bat. Another great win for open source, having that package readily available. 
Well, you know the saying, but wait, there's more? That's where the rabbit holes start to begin here because as Samuel's starting to use this, he realizes, you know, it might be interesting to have a little more polished user interface that would be a little more intuitive to, say, look at your history of previous chat prompts and to be able to take better use of the viewer pane layout and maybe condense some elements, maybe make it a little easier for the user to find certain things so that you, they can focus on the prompt at hand. That led Samuel down some really big rabbit holes when he wanted to implement the feature of having a copy button so that whatever the solution had for code to solve a particular problem, that, he, that the user could hit a little copy button and be able to paste that in to their source prompt or the R console, whatever have you. Well, that was an interesting endeavor into the world of HTML tools, tag modification, dealing with Markdown coming back as the response. And he dived into a lot of issues that I've been reading about quite a bit in uh, David Grandjian's Outstanding Shiny User Interfaces book, which has some great narrative around tag editing and the like that Shiny does under the hood. And he did a lot of explorations on this, eventually did find an interesting solution. But lo and behold, since he was putting this fork of the repo on, on GitHub, another user caught wind of this and found a way to do this natively in JavaScript to put this little copy button in. And turns out it was really elegant. And that is what's been used into the package today. This other user's um, copy-paste uh, methodology which, you know, as Samuel acknowledged, is both happy and maybe a little bittersweet that after all the expiration, that particular solution is not being used. But hey, Samuel, I've been here. I, I have a lot of things I've learned to try and experiment. And maybe there's a more elegant solution that somebody with more experience in that realm of, say, JavaScript or other technology that I'm blending with R that gets merged into an upstream repo. Hey, it's all about the learning process, right? I bet you know way more about tag editing now than you did before you started this process. So again, another great enhancement. But again, there's one more really key aspect here. And that is if you've been using OpenAI's what I'll call default UI for leveraging ChatGPT, you know that as you're, as you're getting the response back, it's coming at you in essence like somebody typing really fast on a keyboard. It's kind of scrolling down and it's, you know, it's kind of fun to look at, but also you're getting a preview before the final response is done of just what this, what the narrative is going to be here. Well, in previous versions of this package, you couldn't see the result until it was fully available. That meant the users just kind of waiting a little bit, maybe waiting a long time, actually, depending on the query and everything. But there is some great enhancements that can be made with some other system utilities. And Mike, I think you've been doing some investigation in this part of the post. Why don't you take us home with what Samuel did here? Yeah, this is, this is one of the coolest parts for me because I have to honestly say that I have never developed a shiny app like the one that GPT Studio is essentially implementing in terms of bringing in a stream, right? Streaming data and displaying that as a stream and not just waiting for the entire text to come in um, before it shows it. So if, if anybody's ever used ChatGPT or seen somebody else use ChatGPT in a video, you know that after you type in your prompt, the response trickles in, 
line by line, essentially. And it's a pretty cool UX, right, that they provide for you to kind of make it feel like you're having an actual conversation. Somewhat, you're, you're slowly seeing the conversation materialize. Um, and now with this new pull request merged into GPT Studio, it, it's not like that package is waiting for the entire response from ChatGPT and then displaying it in the Shiny app. No, no, it's, it's actually displaying the text as it streams in from ChatGPT's API um, doing all of the parsing work, as you said, Eric, to uh, probably convert the markdown that's coming in or, or, or whatever that content that's coming in probably from for, as a JSON response from that, that API and cleaning it up and putting it right in front uh, of the user on the Shiny app and actually having that trickle in on screen, which is really cool to watch the response really materialize in real time. And it, after diving into the blog post a, a little bit further and some of the technical details, it looks like this is courtesy of the curl fetch stream function from the curl package. Um, I know that there are a lot of innovations going on in API handling packages or, or packages that help you wrap APIs. Uh, obviously, curl is one of those HTTR one and HTTR two, I, I think uh, it, there's a lot of innovations going on there as well. And is it John Harmon as well that's working on an R package, a, a brand new R package or suite of packages to sort of be the the one-stop shop for wrapping uh, APIs with R? So we'll see how that project comes around. John Harmon is everywhere. So it did, didn't surprise me that, uh, you know, you, you go to this package and, and the issue posted here, oh, it's from, from John Harmon, and he's very involved in uh, merging that pull request, I believe, and providing some feedback. So uh, kudos, kudos to John for being so involved in all these different areas uh, within the R community, especially this pretty cool large language model stuff. Um, but the concept... Uh, also, of running a Shiny app as a background job, as you were talking about, Eric, is really intriguing to me, right? Because it opens up the ability for you to continue to use your console. Um, and it seems like that could open up some cool other possibilities as well. And you'll, you'll never hear me speak poorly about the RStudio IDE, but I do believe that this is something that's actually pretty obvious and has been easy to do for a while in VS Code, right? You can have multiple R instances running simultaneously. So I imagine that the user experience in uh, in VS Code for using this GPT Studio package um, was a little bit more possible even before this, this PR was merged because you could just have it running in a separate uh, R instance. Does that sound like I'm on the right track there, Eric? I mean, that is one of the biggest flexibilities, right, is you could have a session not only for your local setup. I mean, for me dealing with multiple servers and HPC or cloud environments, you could have another R session on your cloud instance, too. Do a lot of interesting things there. I mean, this is just a case of VS Code has to build a lot of these things in for multiple languages. So it's no surprise. And again, a huge shout out to Kuhn Ren and the others that are maintaining the VS Code for R extension to expose all this for us. Um, I would imagine, though, again, this is Eric's opinion here, that the positive team's paying attention to a lot of this. And I would imagine they're going to make some enhancements to the IDE down the road to make that more flexible. Now, again, I have no inside knowledge of this. I'm just putting it out there as maybe some wishful thinking, you know. <laughs> 
<laughs> trying to speak and trying to manifest it. I like it. Speaking in existence. That's how I roll. <laughs> yes. Yes. Yeah. No, I, I would see that as probably being on the roadmap and maybe there's a repo issue out there somewhere that's, that's public and we don't even have to necessarily uh, guess at that. Somebody can track that down for us. Yes, we would love to help on that with our crack our research team around the world. But um, I remember first diving into running shiny apps as background processes. I think it was an issue I found on the Golem repo once of all things. I remember something about Golem it came up with, and I thought, that is really nifty. I think I remember now. So again, sometimes the, the old timer's memory takes a while to jog in here. But I remember one thing that I've always found annoying when developing shiny apps is that when you modify your code, you have to save your code. And then if you had the app running, you got to stop it, restart it so you can see the new changes. I think I've always been hoping for a way that just like you might do a portal, right? You update the source, you hit save, and it automatically re-renders that app or, or web page or, or slide presentation right away. I want that for Shiny. I think I was trying to do background jobs as a way to make that happen. So maybe that's easier now. But this post definitely jogged my memory to look into that a bit again, even for my general Shiny development. But I, I really enjoyed reading all the technical hurdles that Samuel had to overcome to make this happen because I have been down very uh, strange rabbit holes of my uh, Viz Network uh, struggles recently. And even the concept of having the viewer maximizing you know, the, the layout effectively. Bender done that, did some clever button placement tricks and did custom CSS and JavaScript widgets up the wazoo and customization. So it, it, it takes a lot of time. Hopefully, Samuel, you'll be like me and be like, yeah, this was painful initially perhaps, but you're going to be better off for it because you're going to be able to supercharge your apps quite a bit in the future. And we are better off for it. So a big thanks to, to Samuel for all of his work doing that. Yep. And like I said, another great win in the idea of open source collaboration. He saw the issue, took one issue on and saw that there was a lot more to be done that could help everybody and not just him. So shout out to James Wade for doing such a terrific job with the GPT tools and GPT studio maintenance. Um, we really we really love it. We use a lot of the day job too. We're, we're enjoying every bit of it. And rounding out our highlights today is, again, you know me. I'm a bit of a lazy fellow here. I don't like to do things manually. But when I can automate stuff, especially for grabbing information for research, I'm going to jump all over it. And I'm not the only one because uh, our author of the second highlight here, um, this post comes from Tim Tiefenbach, who is a senior data scientist in the insurance industry, where coincidentally, Tim is also the author of a handy little bot that's on Twitter and Mastodon called Our Stats Package Bot. We'll have a link in the show notes for this, but if you want to follow this bot on either Twitter or Mastodon, you'll get um, notes of when a new package, I believe, hits CRAN. So pretty interesting stuff. So he's got a lot of good knowledge already with dealing with web resources. But he found himself in a situation where for a personal project, he was trying to aggregate information on skincare products. But it was across a website and multiple pages. Sometimes you had to scroll a bit down to get to the various different results embedded in different parts of the page 
And yeah, you could spend like 20, 30 minutes copying, pasting those sections, putting in an office document and then share that with your research partner or whatever have you. No, no, no. This is a job for web scraping because this is a web page. The elements hopefully are nicely structured and most of them were on this website that he was going to. So this post is a great introduction to the different levels of scraping that are possible. Some can get started pretty quickly and such as using the RVEST package, another great package from Posit that when you feed in a web page, then you'll get the HTML as an object and you can interact with that by finding specific elements, say by their CSS div in the ID or other identifier, be able to extract the text out of that result and then make a tidy data frame out of it. Uh, Tim has great experience of this with his uh, package bot that we just mentioned earlier and scraping a web page from CRAN directly on package listings. So utilize some of those principles right here on this uh, skincare product site. But you do have to do a little inspecting. I like to use the developer console in a browser to do this, where you click on an element, you say inspect, and you can find that little ID of that div element or that you know specific HTML tag. So you can start building your query in the HTML element function to grab that specific element, grab the text from it, and start to feed that into your overall data frame to collect these results. Sometimes that's all you need. Sometimes you have to do a little text processing because there might be a whole bunch of white space or new line characters. So you might have to leverage a package like Stringer that can eliminate that white space, maybe eliminate some special characters, and you're on your way. That's working pretty well. And then it starts to get pretty interesting after that because there was some great information on this product site that for some reason was hidden. And I mean literally hidden because it was in an input of type hidden. Now, this is a trick we often use in Shiny apps and we want to selectively hide or show maybe a select input until the user like does something first to expose it via conditional panel or Dinatelli's Shiny JS has a nice hide and unhide uh, functionality as well. Well, if you know these elements are there, you can still scrape that, but the value that was inside, it wasn't a text value. It was like base 64 encoded or something. So you had to use a URL decode function to get that gobbledygook into something that you can actually read. And sure enough, he did it. So this is fantastic. The post has great examples throughout. And you might think he's got it. Like all he has to do then is feed in the URLs of these individual product pages, throw that into like a per map pipeline and lickety split, you'd be done. This is where it gets really tricky, is that the default page to look at the products would only list a handful at a time. I believe it was 12 on the first page. And then they, it implemented what's called dynamic scrolling, which meant the user has to manually scroll past that last or 12th entry to expose the other ones. Now, this, unfortunately, is not easy to automate via a package like RVEST and the like. So Tim dove into the Selenium package, which we've actually highlighted on this podcast, I believe last year, um, to basically spin up 
uh, hidden, you might say, background web browsing session that you can interact with programmatically and, in essence, trick it to act like you as a human scrolling into that page, getting the rest of the entries to be exposed, and then grabbing those individual URLs after that um, scrolling has happened. I won't even pretend to understand how he was able to come up with that. I imagine it was a lot of experimentation. I have not had to dive into that much because most of the time these pages maybe have like a, you know, backward and forward button. You can go next and then you could grab the next page and get that set of elements. Not so much here with this kind of dynamic scrolling mechanism. But to his credit, he's got some great functions that you could use as inspiration if you encounter this similar thing. So once he was able to figure that piece out, then he could get the full, it was like 35 links or so of these different products together. And then that could be fed into a map kind of reduced pipeline to grab a tibble of these results, write it out to a spreadsheet or any of our output file of choice. And there you go. You got your nice summary of skincare product research, all driven automatically albeit probably with a little manual help to get there to know what to what to scrape automatically but it's a great tour de force into going from you know a little bit you know easy-ish scraping to the really gnarly stuff when you have dynamic elements so great spectrum of what's possible but again if you're new to scraping and want to know what's actually possible with a real applied problem i think tim's post got you covered it was a great read and lots of interesting innovations are throughout the post in the example code that I saw that I'll be taking for usage next time I do a scraping adventure. I think anyone that's that's been down web scraping path, um, as I have myself, can relate to the fact that it feels like a scavenger hunt a lot of the times. You figure out one clue uh, just to sort of lead you to another clue, and then, you know, like Tim, just when you've scraped the hidden HTML ID element, you find out it's base 64 encoded, right? And you're, you're down your next rabbit hole. Um, and, and static versus dynamic web scraping are two very different things. Uh, Arvest makes static web scraping uh, from a web page really easy. And whenever I get handed a project where I know I'm going to have to do some web scraping, I hope and pray that it's static, that that table or that element is just sitting right there for me on the web page. Uh, there, there's no additional interaction that I necessarily have to do. I just have to figure out what, what the name of the element is uh, and and reference that in my rvest function, and it pulls the data right in for me. Uh, unfortunately, nowadays, that's not necessarily always the case, right? Every Everyone's trying to make a really beautiful uh JavaScript-based web page that has all sorts of reactive elements to it, where as you scroll the page, new things appear. Um, you know, on some websites in particular, they they don't necessarily want you to scrape the data on that page. They at least want to make it a little more difficult to scrape the data on that page. So that's where you have to employ the techniques of dynamic web scraping, and that's where Selenium and the R Selenium package, which I imagine is Selenium a Python package, and R Selenium is a a wrapper of that, or is Selenium a JavaScript utility? I think Selenium is a Java utility, if I recall correctly. Which, uh, yeah, your mileage may vary there. Just getting that <laughs> set up. Just saying from somebody trying to set up a Java thing at work. Oof, pain. Use Docker. 
<laughs> Thank you. Yes. Containers are your friend, folks. <laughs> Absolutely. Especially in the Selenium world. I think if you're a Pythonista, uh, the beautiful soup package may have some less hardcore dependencies. It might not necessarily require you to install Java. I don't necessarily know how they get around that. But anywho, uh, Selenium absolutely feels like magic uh, once you get the hand of it. it. It allows you to scroll down or up on the page through code. It allows you to click links, uh, check check boxes and radio buttons. It's actually a lot of fun. Um, if you have an IDE going and a, and, and a browser open and, and you can control what's going on in that browser and watch your code, click buttons or scroll a page or select elements. It's a lot of fun to watch. Uh, you know, we have a few uh, GitHub Actions that employ Selenium at Catchbrook Analytics that, that run once a week or, or once a day. Um, and they are Python-based, but we do use the, the Selenium package in Python to do that. And it's pretty incredible how we're completely hands-off for as this data changes on this website, on these websites uh, from week to week or, or day to day. We could scrape that data into a, a SQL database and... Um, build a, a data product right on top of that. And we don't necessarily have to do any of the scraping ourselves. So this is a great tutorial from Tim in terms of getting started uh, with static and dynamic web scraping. And as you said, it also points out some of the trials and tribulations that you may run into as, as you move towards the more dynamic web scraping uh, side of things. Yeah, but as we mentioned in other episodes, there's such a rich amount of data available in these web pages that you know, maybe the web devs aren't as, you know, happy about just exposing a CSV file to download or something like that. You've got to take matters in your own hands, but it is a great way to find that next source, whether it's for your own research or maybe for uh, a new project that you have going and take advantage of HTML being a lot, you know, I hate to say easier, but HTML with the way the markup structured, just take it for somebody who's been in the trenches on this whipping out our vest or in the python side beautiful soup to grab these urls or grab the content behind them is a lot better than trying to scrape something like an rtf file don't ask been there very recently um, <laughs> so being able to take advantage of, of modern you know web structure is, is very helpful even things like xml which have scared me in the past I now have a newfound appreciation after, again, some of these explorations of trying to scrape Office or other document products. It, it, it's gnarly. So, yes, there are some gnarly parts of this workflow, but with this, you have a boatload of opportunities to practice it and also be able to be inspired to, for your next scraping project. RTF, that, that turns my stomach hearing that. <laughs> well, we don't want to cause you any nausea here, Mike. So maybe we'll put that to bed and we're going to point our listeners to the rest of this issue, a fantastic issue that we're talking about here in episode 125. John's also done a tremendous job here and we'll take a couple minutes here for our additional highlights. And for me, I wanted to put a, a good call out to the CRAN Task Views, the next generation effort that's being headed by a few brilliant members of the community. It's actually an ArxViv working paper on this initiative to rework the infrastructure and the maintenance and better yet, the contribution to what are called the task views that are available on the CRAN pages. So if you don't know what a task view is, 
These are a set of about 30 or so high-level subject areas that have a maintainer that talks about all the different packages that fulfill a need or greatly enhance that workflow. Some of my favorites are the ones around high-performance computing because I'm a very frequent user of those packages. Uh, many others across other realms of science and com computing and the like. There's, I know there's one on visualization. Well, the infrastructure around this has been admittedly a little dated. So this um, new effort is looking at ways of modernizing that workflow by having the sources of the task views hosted on a version control repository such as GitHub and making the syntax not have to be XML for the source of these, but rather use Markdown. You know, we talk about Markdown all the time on here. That's a great way to get new contributions to to talk about, you know, tap into the community to help you out. Our week is a poster child of that. So this is a, a great effort. I'm not sure how far along they are, but I'll be keeping an eye on this because task views were literally one of the first great resources I learned about as an R user that was just getting their feet wet way back in the almost stone age tech of 2005, trying to figure out what packages I needed for some niche survival analyses. So they are, they are really helpful. So I'm really excited to see where that new effort takes hold, hopefully later this year. It's a very cool find, Eric. Uh, I'm excited to see how that materializes as well. And I found a really cool blog post by Andrew Heiss on building fancy road trip maps. Um, I'm usually reading Andrew Heiss's blog for his his very applied approach to demonstrating statistical modeling methods. Um, but this is a fun one. This is a different one. This is very data viz heavy. I didn't realize that Andrew, uh, who's a professor, also teaches a data viz class, and it's it's very easy to see why. And it looks like he uh, is going on a 5,000-mile road trip around the USA with his family from Georgia to Utah, I believe. And instead of going in a straight line, they are going to uh, they're going to take the scenic route, if you will, and make make quite a few different stops along the way. And he wanted to do some data visualization of what his trip is going to look like. Uh, in particular, the actual routes that he's going to take to get from uh, Georgia to Utah and back. Um, and, and it's a pretty incredible utilization of ggplot that I would check out if you're a DataViz fan. And then one cool package that I was not familiar with. Um, so there's the OpenStreetMaps package, which allows you to do things like geocoding and reverse geocoding as well. But in terms of actually building a route, and, and there are some different things that come into play when you're developing a route, right? There's an algorithm, all sorts of algorithms at play to try to optimize your route in terms of uh, quickest uh, distance between two points, uh, you know, traffic, taking into account all sorts of different things. So there is an, a package called OSRM, which is, I believe, open, stands for Open Source Route Mapping. And... So Google has an API for creating routes as well that is a paid offering. But if you want to look at the open source side of the equation, this OSRM package has some functions in that package that allow you to build routes. And Andrew does a great job of showcasing these routes. I believe the main function contained in the OSRM package that will do this for you is called OSRM root. So lots, of, lots to see in this blog post. And if you're just interested in taking a look at the path around the U.S. that Andrew and his family are, are taking, if nothing else, uh, this blog post is a fun one to check out. 
Andrew's always had my respect for, like you said, his awesome statistical content. But I, yeah, I had no idea until this what a powerhouse he is with visualization. But my goodness, Andrew, um, he mentions in this post too, he has six children he's about to take on this road trip with. Like, I've had a hard enough time taking two kids on a road trip without absolute chaos ensuing about halfway through of kids being cranky and stuff. So, Andrew, if you have any tips on how you're going to keep your kids entertained, that whole set of, that set of driving, even though you are making frequent stops, you know, I'm not hard to find. I'll tell you how to find me later on. Maybe, Mike, you'll want this info later on, too, as your children get older, because that's a long time to be on the road with six kids. I, I commend you for that. Yes, in truth, that would be as valuable information to know as the code in this blog post. Yeah, because um, in July, I do plan on taking a short little road trip across maybe three states or so. But yeah, that's that's child's play compared to what you're about to go through. But hey, I most definitely looking at this post again when the time comes as I want to plan my route too maybe it won't be quite as scenic but i'd love to plan the stops and be able to use my favorite tool of choice to do it that's a win in my book i i love it absolutely and one other thing that i absolutely love about andrew's blog is it is all quarto all the time and it's open source in his in his github repository if you are looking to build your own quarto site or if you're like me who has still dragged their feet on migrating from distill to quarto i think i am going to have andrew's repository right up on my second screen uh, when i finally do make that migration for catchbrook's technical blog uh, site hopefully very soon Yes, yes. Nothing like seeing others, you know, take that journey before you. It's easy to, to learn from their efforts, too. But yeah, I definitely endorse your journey to the quarter on that. I have a few work sites that I need to migrate to. And yeah, I'm not finding many excuses anymore. Well, speaking of no excuses, well, in my humble opinion, there's no excuse not to check out the rest of this issue. It's got more fantastic content all at rweekly.org. You've got your healthy mix of great tutorials like Andrew's that we just talked about and our previous highlights we discussed, new packages, some great visualizations, even some Twitter posts on that, lots of lots of great content to choose from. And if you want to you know, help out the project, there are a couple of ways to do that. We love hearing from you on the great resource you found. So rweekly.org has a very handy page right at the top to take you to the GitHub page and the draft markdown file that's going to go in the upcoming issue. Just put your link in there, send us a pro request, and the curator of the week will be glad to get that merged in. And also, we love to hear from you as well. We've already put out a couple calls to people like Andrew to help us with some advice. But uh, if you want to get in touch with us, we have a few different ways. We have a contact page in this episode's show notes right there linked, so you can get in touch with us there. You can also get in touch with us if you're listening on one of those newer podcast apps that you could get, such as Podverse or Fountain. There's a way to send us a little boost in the podcast episode directly. Uh, More details on that in the show notes. And if you want to keep your favorite podcast player, we are hosted on the podcast index, and we got instructions on how you can send us a, a message and boost directly on the website too. But also we are on social media. I am sporadically on Twitter with at the RCast. And I'm also on Mastodon with at our podcast at podcastindex.social. And also a quick shout out to um, 
Sebastian Rochette, who we had talked about last week on the highlights. Apparently, he's been thinking about some of the things we talked about with using uh, Fuzin with potentially Golem in the future. So apparently, I was foreshadowing without realizing it. So that was a great shout out, Sebastian. Thanks for sending us that. Yes, thank you so much, Sebastian, for reaching out. And it is Fusin. So I will make sure to pronounce it correctly. From I think I was calling it Fusin uh, last last week. So I'm glad that we we have the uh, correct pronunciation and articulation. I feel like this happens a lot in the R package ecosystem, right? Somebody might have a, a name in their head. I, I probably am guilty of it uh, as much as as anybody. Um, but you know, without necessarily spelling out the pronunciation in the README, um, you know, our version of, of what it sounds like phonetically might be different from person to person. So thanks for thanks for clearing the air on that one. Uh, Sebastian. Absolutely. And as one of the, um, you might say, few that are doing podcasts regularly uh, dedicated to R, we do take some responsibility to try to get this right. But yes, we love the corrections. We, we, we welcome that greatly because, yeah, I have a hard enough time just speaking normal words. So that's great. But, uh, <laughs> but speaking of uh, speaking or getting in touch with us, uh, Mike, where can the listeners get a hold of you? Sure, uh, definitely on on Mastodon a lot more than than Twitter these days, uh, and on Mastodon at Mike underscore Thomas at Fostodon dot org. Um, but I do hang around a little bit on Twitter, like you, Eric, at Mike underscore Ketchbrook, uh, K E T C H B R O O K. Very nice, and um, yeah, we've had a, a great uh, great session today, Mike. As always, thank you for uh, accommodating my hectic schedule this week. There's a healthy mix of work things and external presentations. So if you're listening to this um, on Thursday, I will be giving a live stream of shiny development work as part of the art medicine conference. So um, there will be chaos, I'm sure, but we're going to learn a lot along the way. So um, go to the art medicine site. And you'll find that schedule there. If you want to see me dust off the uh, live streaming chops a little bit even for an hour or so. So, um, but yeah, that will close up shop for, episode 125 of our weekly highlights and we'll be back with another episode next week.